listening to Tennessee Roads, recorded in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Tennessee Roads. My name is Dusty, and I will be your guide as we hitchhike through history of all the towns and communities that make up the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains. Again, hey there, everybody. Like I said, my name is Dusty, and welcome to the very first ever episode of Tennessee Roads Podcast. I am so excited for this, guys. I don't think you realize how truly excited I am. This is something that I have wanted to do for a really, really long time, and we are finally here. It is finally happening. Ah, oh, it's so awesome, guys. Um, well, before we get going, before we uh, jump into our main topic today, uh, I'm going to tell you all just a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Dusty. I am born and raised here in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee. Um, I have grown up in these parts and I'm purebred uh, Tennessee hillbilly, <laughs> as uh, a lot of folks like to say. Um, I'm pretty excited for this. Uh, keep in mind, however, Tennessee Roads will be releasing one episode a month at the beginning of every month. Um, as of now, I do hold down uh, two uh, jobs full time, and then in the month of October, again a third job um, that runs during that month. But speaking of October, I'm actually really excited already. I know it's only February um, when this uh, podcast will air. But I already have some amazing plans set in place for October uh, and some fun things that I do there. Um, but yeah, um, so like I said, I work a lot, so it has taken a whole lot to actually get this up and running. Um, but yeah, so there's a couple of people that I definitely want to be able to thank as well. The first person I've got to thank is definitely my friend uh, Jennifer Alexander. Jennifer has been a very good friend of mine for a very long time. Um, and it was through conversations that I'd had with her and working with her on some other things that we, um, or that I really just was like, you know, I just need to do it. I need to jump right in head first and do it. Other, uh, person that I need to thank is, um, Meagle. Uh, he's a very good friend of mine, a local music artist here in East Tennessee. Meagle is very up and coming. He's very young. He's only 17 years old. Um, but his music definitely focuses around uh, more of the rap music genre, which isn't particularly my style, but even so, I have always enjoyed listening to Meagle's music. Um, you guys should definitely check him out on iTunes and Spotify. Um, he's there already. Um, this kid is definitely going to go places. He is absolutely amazing. Uh, and I have to give a very special thanks to him um, for being a, a good mentor to me, actually, uh, when it came to um, all the programming that I'm using and the equipment that I'm using. And even the microphone that I'm recording on today was actually a gift uh, from him. So uh, thank you very, very much. Um, so to Jennifer and Meagle, thank you guys so much. Um, I couldn't have done this without you guys. So again, thank you. Now, guys, one of the really great things about this podcast is um, I definitely have an, a plan and an idea in my head on some of the topics that I want to talk about and historical aspects that I want to hit on. But um, East Tennessee and the Appalachian Mountains, the Great Smoky Mountains, there is so much tradition and heritage and folklore in this community. 
And I'm definitely going to need your all's help to find it at times. So if you guys know of really great stories, great folklores, or great traditions that your families or families in the Smoky Mountains ever participated in, please reach out um, and share those stories with me so I can share your family's stories. Um, And I think that that would be absolutely amazing. So I look forward to hearing from you guys. Be sure you guys can... um, Follow me on Facebook, TN Roads Podcast, or you can go to TennesseeRoadsPodcast.com, um, and we will have all of our shows there. Please be sure that you guys uh, like and subscribe on Spotify or uh, Apple Podcast, which is where we will be debuting our first couple of episodes, um, and then we're hoping to be on Google Podcasts and YouTube and some other things as time goes on. Um But yeah, so I'm excited. Uh, This is great. Look forward to hearing from you guys. But without further ado, I think that it is time that we jump in. Um, As the time progresses, I plan on doing some additional segments outside of our main story. But for today, I'm going to keep it simple and I've already rambled long enough. We're going to step back to a time when gas prices averaged $1.22 a gallon, and most fast food chains were closed by 9 p.m. The year was 1982, and this would be the year that Knoxville, Tennessee, the scruffy little city on the river, would be put into the worldwide spotlight. Today, we look back at what some people say is Knoxville's most important event in its history, the 1982 World's Fair. This would be the first World's Fair held in the South, and many people would go on to say that this would be the last successful World's Fair in history. For 184 days, or six and a half months, the city of Knoxville would showcase 16 different countries to 11,127,786 visitors. Their theme? Energy turns the world. The 1982 World's Fair would open on the fairground that would be located between the University of Tennessee campus and the Henley Street, located in downtown Knoxville, Tennessee. The site was a former train rail yard and was transformed into a showcase of the world. Now before we jump in and talk about what happened at the fair, let's take a moment to discuss the long and sometimes controversial road it took to bring the fair to life. Knoxville developers thought about bringing the World's Fair to East Tennessee after seeing the success of the 1974 World's Fair in Spokane, Washington. Stuart Evans, who was the president of the Downtown Knoxville Association, proposed the idea about the fair to city government. This is when the then-Knoxville mayor Kyle Testerman appointed a local banker, Jake Butcher, to an exploratory committee to investigate the World's Fair. Butcher served as one of the main driving forces behind the fair. His involvement was so high that many Knoxvillians referred to Expo 82 as Jake's Fair. And after some time, the Knoxville Foundation Incorporation was established to organize and operate the event. However, there were skeptics, both locally and nationally, that doubted Knoxville's ability to host such a large event. The Wall Street Journal was cited for creating Knoxville's most famous nickname in a 1980 article where they posed the question if a scruffy little city on the river was up for the challenge. Now, on a complete side note, I had absolutely no clue where uh, 
the scruffy city of Knoxville came from. I have heard that for years, especially after I turned 18 and I started going to downtown Knoxville and I started hanging out at the bars and the clubs and you would see, you know, keep Knoxville scruffy, scruffy city hall. But I had no clue where this came from. Um, And it was through doing research that I realized that it was from uh, that news article from the Wall Street Journal where they weren't sure if a scruffy little city on the river would be able to actually step up to the plate and host uh, the World's Fair. So I just thought that that was completely interesting, um, completely blew my mind, and just shows yet again how the Knoxville World Fair affected Knoxville. Um, And as I was saying, there was much speculation locally on if the fair could or even should happen. One person that opposed the fair was uh, Joe Dodd, a UT political science professor. He thought that there was too much risk involved with the amount of money that it would take to get the city up to par. Uh, Even the city officials debated whether to hold a referendum and allow the people of Knoxville to decide if the city should issue $11.6 million in bonds, equivalent to $42.6 million in today's money, to purchase the then-decaying Louisville and Nashville rail yard and depot. City Councilwoman Bernice O'Connor was adamant about allowing people of Knoxville to vote on whether the bond should be issued or not. However, the majority of the city council refused to call for a referendum. The bonds were issued and the land was purchased. Now, in if you listen to WBIR's uh, story where they go back and celebrate the 1982 World's Fair... Um, there's actually a clip of all of this happening uh, at a city council meeting, and you can hear Councilman O'Connor giving a, a passionate call to this referendum. And um, she pretty much spells it out and says that those that vote against this referendum vote against the people of Knoxville and not letting their voices be heard. Um, and you can hear a ton of people in the background just cheering her on in agreement. So that leads me to wonder how many people in Knoxville um, really were not in support um, of Expo 82 at that time. Um, And, you know, and then a lot of people had concerns of the current infrastructure of Knoxville not being able to hand the additional traffic pile up. Um, Malfunction Junction was already a huge, huge issue in this town. Um, however, the Department of Transportation stepped up and said that they were ready to bring on this challenge and help bring Knoxville into the future. Uh, the department already had plans to make these changes to the roadways in and around Knoxville and said that bringing the fare would only cause those projects to be completed sooner. Soon after that, um, Interstates I-40 and I-75 interchanges were reconfigured. Both interstates were widened, and the I-640, or the Knoxville Bypass, was completed just in time for the fair to debut. Now, the I-640 interchange has shown to be a great investment for the city of Knoxville. Um, It is used as uh, like a hazardous material bypass, so trucks with hazardous material have to use that route. Um, And then when you have large events in downtown Knoxville at the Knoxville Convention Center, the University of Tennessee, this bypass is used um, to help go get away from like the game day traffic. Now, I will say that Monday through Friday, about four or five o'clock, you know, both ends of the I-640 interchange as you come back into connection with I-40 do tend to get backed up. Um, And that just goes to show you how Knoxville has continued to grow and how our traffic patterns have continued to increase. 
Um, but with that being said, the I-640 interchange was still a great addition to Knoxville, and I'm definitely glad that we have it. Um, now, as the Department of Transportation worked on the roadways, other crews began to work on the old rail yard. The project would cost $100 million. A little more than 10% was produced by the city to purchase the property. The federal government gave uh, $12 million for site development and $20 million for the U.S. Pavilion. Banks put up an additional $30 million in loans, and the rest came from exhibitors and corporations. Even the residents of Knoxville gave collectively over $1 million. It seemed that most Knoxville residents knew that this fair was going to happen and that they should all just get on board. Jake Butcher looked to local banks, then regional banks, before bringing in the larger banks like Berkeley's Bank of London and Chemical Bank in New York. He had a strategic plan in place to ensure proper funding. Knoxville banks were the first to sign on and agreed to be the last ones paid out. Regional banks were the second to pay in and second last to pay out. So by the time he got to the larger banks around the world, the fair had already begun working on structures. So those larger banks saw less risk and knew that they would receive their return in a shorter time because ticket sales had already begun to be sold. Now, I have said that Jake Butcher was the driving force behind the fair, but I haven't talked about the controversy and ruin that followed him after the fair that also landed him in federal prison. Now, Jacob Franklin Butcher was born on May 8th of 1936 in the royal town of Maynardville, Tennessee. He was born to Cecil Butcher Sr., who was the manager of a general store and bank president in Union County. Jake went to Hawassi College and served in the United States Marine Corps, and after spending much of their youth in and around their father's banks, Jake and his younger brother Cecil Butcher Jr. began to buy stock in many Knoxville banks starting in 1968. The Butcher brothers owned or controlled eight banks, and Jake Butcher's United American Bank controlled about 39% of the banking reserves in Knoxville. By 1982, the United American Bank was responsible for over 50% of Knoxville's business loans. It's said that Butcher's personal net worth was declared about $34 million. In the late 1970s, the bank built its 27-story headquarters, the Plaza Tower, or as it is presently called, First Tennessee Plaza. It was then and still remains the tallest building in Knoxville. The building is now home to First Horizon Bank and has been since February of 1983, just a couple months after the World's Fair closed. In the 1970s, Jake Butcher ran for the Democratic Party nomination for governor of Tennessee. He lost in the primary, but he won the nomination in 1978. He lost the general election later that year to Republican Lamar Alexander, and it was expected that Butcher would make another attempt for office in 82 for governorship. However, he supported the then-Knoxville mayor, Randy Tyree, who defeated state senator Anna O'Brien for the Democratic nomination. And during that same year, the 1982 World's Fair would open. Also, in 1982, rumors began to circulate about the Butcher's banking practices. And on November 1st, 1982, just the day after the World's Fair closed... Federal bank regulators from the FDIC, or Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, raided all of the Butcher Brothers' 29 bank locations and offices. This prevented any transfers of funds or cover-ups. Bank records ultimately led investigators down a road of illegal loans, forged documents, and other various forms of fraud. The United American Bank collapsed on February 14th of 1983. 
At that time, it was the fourth largest bank failure in the United States. Seven other butcher-controlled banks and the Southern Industrial Banking Corporation, a state license and loan thrift company ran by C.H. Butcher, also became insolvent during the rest of 1983, and an additional three banks in 1984. The FDIC estimated that the losses in connection with the failed Butcher Brothers banks totaled $382.6 million. Later that year, it was learned that Butcher was also insolvent. His assets were listed, were listed at $11.9 million and his liabilities at $32.5 million. Butcher pleaded guilty to the federal charges of bank fraud and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was paroled in 1992 and resided in an Atlanta suburb. Butcher passed away on July 19th of 2017. And while many people may have sour views of the Butcher Brothers... We know that the World's Fair would not have been possible without Jake Butcher. So, the Knoxville World's Fair would open on May 1st of 1982. The ceremony would take place at the Court of Flags, and the opening day festivities were attended by 87,000 people and were televised on local and regional stations. President Ronald Reagan would even attend the event. The master of ceremonies was television's Diana Shore, and musical artists like Porter, Porter Wagner and Ricky Skaggs were even present for the opening day festivities. Now, the fair consisted of 72 acres and would run alongside the University of Tennessee to downtown Knoxville. Funland was one of the most popular areas of the 82 World's Fair, and it set just adjacent to Neyland Stadium along the river. In Funland, there was a log flume ride that I was told that was moved to Silver Dollar City, Tennessee, and remained on the property until Dollywood refurbished the country fair area of the park in the early 2000s. However, I looked into it, and I determined that this, unfortunately, was not true. While the rides could have been manufactured by the same company, I've never been able to recover where the World's Fair flume ride came from, or what happened to it after the fair. Now, one of the most famous attractions in Funland was their 150-foot-tall Ferris wheel. At the time, it was the largest Ferris wheel in the Western Hemisphere. Now, that's crazy to think, considering how that was big, when the Great Smoky Mountain Wheel at the island in Pigeon Forge is 200 feet. Now, the wheel would carry six people per gondola for a total of 240 riders at a time. Now, the ride itself was produced by a German ride manufacturer named Vacoma. This is the same company that would go on to build Dragonflyer in Dollywood's 2019 expansion Wildwood Grove. Now, most of the Ferris wheel parts had to be shipped over directly from Germany, and a, an original part of that wheel never made it to the U.S. It has sank to the bottom of the ocean. While en route to the United States, a storm washed that part of the wheel over, and it was never able to be recovered. Now, this just happened two weeks before the fair was slated to open, so fair officials had the parts reproduced and shipped over from Amsterdam. Now, this time, the parts would be flown over in a 747 Flying Tigers noseloader aircraft, which was the largest commercial aircraft at that time. And when that 747 landed in Knoxville, it was the largest aircraft to ever use McGee-Tyson Airport. The wheel was assembled, and it was cleared to open on time with the fair. Now, they also had rides like a pirate ship, swings, and even a roller coaster. But let's move over to the main fairground. Now, the Knoxville World's Fair hosted 18 different country pavilions. 
And those pavilions included Mexico, Japan, the Republic of the Philippines, Italy, the European Economic Community, which included Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, Ireland, Luxembourg, and Greece, the Federal Republic of Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Hungarian People's Republic, the Republic of Panama, the Republic of Korea, the Royal Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the United States, Australia, Canada, People's Republic of China, Egypt, and Peru. And for the corporate pavilions and other exhibits, they had the pavilions such as the Technology and Lifestyle Center, which featured multiple corporate exhibits, Today's Solar Home Pavilion, Home of the Future Pavilion, World of Travel Pavilion, the Knoxville Health Pavilion, Baptist Ministries Pavilion, Tinco and Occidental Pavilion, Connergy Pavilion, the ACT-82 Pavilion, the Budweiser Clydesdales Pavilion, the American Electricity Energy Exhibit Pavilion, the Gas and Energy Pavilion, the Federal Express Pavilion, and the TVA, Tennessee Valley Adventure. Now, the Technologies and Lifestyles Centers was one of the most popular places at the fair. This is where companies would showcase the newest technologies in the world. Texaco was one of the exhibitors that would show something off that would take the world by storm. Pay at the pump. (laughs) Guests would participate in swiping a Texaco credit card at the pump and enter an ID PIN number, and then they would be able to pay for gas. (laughs) Now, that's crazy. Something that we do regularly every day all over the world was barely even thought of before this fair. Now, one of the neat things about this new pump was that you could get gas even if the station was closed. Now, clearly, this did not last for forever, as most gas stations nowadays are open either 24 hours a day or the pumps are shut off when they close. Also, Lincoln Continental debuted the first phone in a car. Every 15 to 20 minutes, someone was chosen to make a call on that phone to anywhere in the world for up to three minutes. Lincoln had led the world into bringing phones into our cars, but they truly weren't far off from modern-day cellular use in cars. The Lincoln Continental phone was a numerical panel on the dashboard, and once you placed your call, you would speak into a microphone into the sun visor. Now, obviously, that's not much different than what we have. Obviously, we utilize Bluetooth now, and it just connects our phone to the car. But even in most cars, if you look, your microphone um, for your Bluetooth and your Apple CarPlay is located either uh, in your sun visor or adjacent to your sun visor above your center console there. So that's pretty neat to know that Lincoln... um, kind of debuted that and to see where it's progressed in, you know, a little over 30-something years afterwards. Um, now, the fair would also showcase uh, touchscreen computers, Tetra Pak box shelf-stable milk, and this would be where Coca-Cola would debut Cherry Coke. The Ford Motor Company had an um, exhibit that centered around the new Alternative Fuel Vehicle, or AFV, not to be confused with America's Funniest Home Videos. The concept for this vehicle was a two-passenger sporty urban car that would operate on natural gas or methane, which is the same fuel that heats most homes. It could be refueled at home using a small compressor. Now, while the vehicle would have been slightly more expensive um, than a standard gas vehicle to drive off the lot, over time it would be significantly cheaper with fuel cost. Now, in 2021, the Ford Motor Company produces many different models of vehicles that run on either 
compressed natural gas, propane auto gas, biodiesel, ethanol, hybrid, plug-in hybrid, and all-electric vehicles. Now, even some of the U.S.'s most influential people were in attendance to the festivities, as well as people from around the world. As I said earlier, President Ronald Reagan opened the fair on May 1st. Other dignitaries spoke at the opening, including Tennessee Governor Lamar Alexander and Senator Jim Sasser. Red Skelton, Victor Borg, Johnny Cash, Chet Elkins, Loretta Lynn, the Warshaw Philharmonic Orchestra, and the London Symphony Orchestra all performed at the fair. The NFL even held an exhibition game at the University of Tennessee's Neyland Stadium between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New England Patriots. The Steelers won 24-20 to a sold-out stadium of 93,521 in attendance. Each week, the fair ran different themes, like Roots of Appalachia, storytelling, old-time radio, um, coal mining week, harvest week, and plenty of others. Also, each week, the fair would showcase a different nation in attendance. This fair would be the first time that the People's Republic of China would participate in the fair, Um, And it proved to be very beneficial for them, as the Chinese pavilion typically had the longest line of people waiting to get and learn learn about their country. During their week under the spotlight, many Chinese dignitaries came to the fair. Many performers would take to the stage to showcase their country's rich traditions and heritage. And even the historic Kabuki Theater performed at the fair. Now, politics would also be front and center as the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. would speak about the U.S. role in arms sales to Taiwan. He stated that if America wants to sell weapons to Taiwan, that relations between America and China would be affected. The inventor of the Rubik's Cube, Arno Rubik, would even be in attendance with the Hungarian pavilion. He held a competition to see how quickly attendees could solve his puzzle, and a 14-year-old boy won the competition in just 50 seconds. In the Peru pavilion... A five-century-old mummy would be unveiled to an invited crowd of 800. Even Dr. Bass would be in attendance. And if you don't know who Dr. Bass is, just look up the body farm at UT. From August 13th to September 5th, Saudi Arabia should have been front and center. However, they would shock visitors for another reason. It was announced that Saudi Arabia would cancel their country's week at the fair. Their reasoning is that it was an inappropriate time to celebrate, and Saudi officials said that funds allocated for Saudi's use would be reallocated to aid refugees in war-torn Lebanon. Now, some of the structures from the 1982 World's Fair would go down in history. Most notably, the Knoxville Sun Sphere. It was the most iconic building that became a part of the permanent skyline of Knoxville. The Sun Sphere stands at 266 feet tall and is topped with a five-story globe, that is designed by Community Tectonics, which was an Oxville-based architectural firm that still operates today. During the fair, it would cost $2 to ride the elevator to the tower's observation deck. There were two observation decks and three restaurants inside. Now, the restaurant featured items such as the Sunburger and a rum and juice cocktail called the Sunburst. On May 12th of 1982, somebody shot the globe from outside the fair site, which shattered one of the sphere's windows. Now, nobody was harmed in the incident, but no one was also ever arrested or charged with the crime. Now, the window's design is actually interesting in itself. So the sphere is made up of two layers of glass. 
a tempered glass layer on the inside, and a layer of laminated glass coated with a dusting of 24 karat gold on the outside. This was done so if the glass ever broke from the inside, it would fall onto the laminated layer, preventing it from the falling to the fairgrounds below. Now, according to the website of the World's Fair Park, the Sun Sphere was closed after the fair's end and remained vacant and very underutilized for most of its post-fair life. During 1999, the city briefly reopened the observation deck, but it was closed again to the public, as the public building authority moved in to quite literally oversee the construction of the Knoxville Convention Center that would be completed in 2001. In 2005, Mayor Bill Haslam announced that the Sun Sphere and the Tennessee Amphitheater would be renovated for public use, and in 2007 it was announced that they would renovate without the use of taxpayer money. Later that year, the SunSphere's observation deck on the fourth level would reopen to the public free of charge. In 2008, a privately owned business took up residence on the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th floors. Um, now, one thing that confuses me a little bit, and I have not been able to find a definitive answer, is the fair opened with five levels two observation decks, and three restaurants, but the World's Fair website says that there are eight levels. So, I don't really know how that works. Um, and I really didn't realize that until just recently. Um, so, I don't know. I'm going to have to look that one up. Um, currently, though, the Sun Sphere is closed to the public at request of the CDC guidelines to help stop the spread of COVID-19. So hopefully uh, the observation deck can be reopened soon, guys. Um, if you have not had the opportunity to go, do it. It is completely free of charge. And the Knoxville Sun Sphere is amazing, guys. Um, it, was or it was renovated again, um, I think, in like 2013. Um but it is, I mean, it is absolutely beautiful. You can see in every direction uh, from there. And it even talks a little bit about the World's Fair uh, when you go up in there. So definitely go check it out. Now, the Tennessee Amphitheater is uh, the only other structure that still stands from the 1982 World's Fair. Now, during the fair, this place was home to country and classical music concerts. But after the fair closed, the amphitheater was used for an array of activities until it was closed in 1998 for the construction of the new convention center that would take place just across the pond. It reopened in 2001, but it quickly closed again in 2002 due to structural problems. The theater was fenced off and began to rot away. But, like I said earlier, in 2005 it was announced that it would be restored, and Mayor Haslam held his inaugurational address for his second term in office in the amphitheater, and it was the first event to be held in this structure after being closed and empty for years. Now, sadly, when the fair ended, all of those pavilions came down as well. Almost 10 years later, the city decided that the land where the U.S. pavilion was sitting would be better used for something else. So on April 6th of 1991, the pavilion was demolished to make way for the now Knoxville Convention Center, which overlooks the World's Fair Park. The Great Elm Tree Theater was one of the most popular theaters at the fair. Unfortunately, it fell victim to Mother Nature when it, sometime after the fair, it was struck by lightning. The rest of it was cut down and inevitably hauled off. Now, the Knoxville Museum of Art resides in its place. The LNN station was utilized during the 82 World's Fair, and after the fair, it housed several different restaurants over the years, and at one point was used as an office complex. 
But in 2011, it became a part of the Ellenin STEM Academy and was the first standalone magnet school in Knox County Schools. Now, while people watched the physical buildings fall and Knoxville return to normal, they also saw as businesses grew from a food stand to an everyday eatery by 2021. Petro debuted at the fair. It was intended to be a summer fling, but the eatery reappeared at the 1982 Louisiana Expo, and once again, it was a crowd favorite. In 1985, Petro opened their first brick-and-mortar store in Westtown Mall. And by the end of the millennium, Petros had opened its first drive through location in West Hills. In 2001, Petros partnered with the University of Tennessee Athletics, and Petros was the first outside-branded food concept in Thompson Bowling Arena and Neyland Stadium, giving birth to the game day Petros tradition. In 2011, Petros hit the road in their first food truck and was back to serving food fair style at festivals like Bonnaroo and many others. In 2019, they had expanded to locations in Arkansas and in Texas. Lenore City, Johnson City, and Maryville, Tennessee fans got a new Petros, and their, new th- er, and their famous Hint of Orange Tea expands into grocery stores throughout the Southeast. And in 2020, amidst a global pandemic, Petros was introduced to the Southern Pines of North Carolina. Now, the Stratton House restaurant, which was also known as the Foundry, was a very popular place during the World's Fair. It was home to a German beer garden and a lot of food. So this place was packed with folks. They would dance and drink beer and just have a great time. Now, the foundry at the fair um, continued after the World's Fair closed, and now it's known as the foundry at the fairgrounds, um, and it is still considered one of Knoxville's most premier entertainment venues. Now, the 1982 World's Fair would prove to be very successful. In fact, it was the last financially successful fair, according to many people. The fair would finally pay off all of its debts in May of 2007. And 38 years later, Knoxville would play host to conventions like Fanboy Expo, the Home and Garden Show, the Lego Convention, CreepyCon Halloween and Horror Convention, Chocolate Fest, and many others. So, to this day, World's Fair Park and the Knoxville Convention Center will continue to welcome people from around the world to that scruffy little city on the river. Oh, hey, you're still here. Well, I'll let you in on a little interesting fun facts that I didn't talk about earlier. Did you know that the 1982 World's Fair was featured in an episode of The Simpsons? Also, some of the historic houses located right along the side of World's Fair Park had people living in them monthly right before the fair began. Greedy landlords kicked them out as an opportunity to rent them to people who were coming to the fair. Unfortunately, it didn't go so well, and a lot of greedy people lost out on money. Oh, let me leave you with this. Here's some audio I found from the 1982 World's Fair commercial. Mexico, it's coming. From China, a piece of the Great War, it's coming. From every corner of the earth, it's coming. And it's coming soon. You've got to be there. Point me in the right direction, I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be there. 
I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be there.